Hey gang, it's Harold. I recently had the privilege to spend a day with the great Roger McGowan. This podcast is the first of a series of podcasts that are singularly composed of an interview with Mr. Roger McGowan as we discuss his life and his career in wargaming. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. Roger McGowan has worked on over 500 war games and designed various game magazines in his career. He's the holder of numerous games industry and hobby awards. Roger started playing games in high school in Oceanside, California, just north of San Diego. His first amateur magazine was titled Arcubus in 1974, and in 1976, Roger founded Fire and Movement Magazine an independent and professional magazine devoted to reviewing games. Fire and Movement Magazine has won six Charles S. Roberts Award for Best Professional Magazine and was included in the Origins Gamma Hall of Fame in 1999. In 1976, the Avalon Hill Game Company approached Roger to design their war game packaging. Roger's first package design for Avalon Hill was the Russian Campaign in 1976, followed by Squad Leader in 1977, Cross of Iron in 1978, and Flat Top in 1979. Roger would design the packaging for most of Avalon Hill's war games over the next 10 years, resulting in over 24 designs along with cover art and interior art for General Magazine. Along with Avalon Hill, Roger also created packaging designs for Game Designers Workshop, Simulations Canada, Operational Studies Group, People's War Games, Yakinto War Games, Quarter Deck Games, Hobby Japan, 3W Game Company, Australian Design Group, and others. In 1990, as art director and senior vice president, Roger helped to launch GMT Games. Over the last 30 years, Roger has been in charge of the visual ID of GMT Games by designing the packaging concepts, company and game logos, physical systems for the games, and the marketing image for the company. In 1992, he designed and co-founded C3i Magazine with a focus on GMT games and the history of board wargame hobby. I met with Roger in Los Angeles, and we spent several hours discussing his life, career, and the state of the wargaming hobby. This will be the first part of a discussion with the intent of giving you a unique view of the history of the hobby through Roger McGowan's eyes. We start the interview by discussing Roger's life as the son of a Marine. Your father was a Marine. Yes, he was. Uh-huh. We discussed this, and and uh, part of that generation, the uh, he was he was uh, he was a Marine during World War II in the Pacific. Right. He. Um well, uh, to even go back further, he was a high school graduate, um, Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, basically graduated around 1940. Um, and he wanted to go to college, but he wasn't able to because of money, didn't have any money, and uh, the family uh, did not have money. 
so um, he basically went out on his own, and uh, he wound up in Texas um, and became a real cowboy. I uh, worked on a ranch in Texas. and What uh, part of Texas? As I recall, it was somewhere close to Waco in that area. And uh, um, they, it was a pretty big ranch, and they did in those days. They actually did have, you know, cattle drives and things like that. Uh, so anyway, it was around that time he's working there at the ranch as a cowhand, and uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor happens. And uh, he volunteers, he, and he joins the Marine Corps. Wow. And and um, he was uh, he was stationed. Were, were you around then? No, that's before Not, my that's time. Pre Roger. Uh, yeah, um, I'm a result of all that. In, in that, in that, <laughs> because of the war, and and he was involved in a number of um, Marine Corps operations in the Pacific. Um, so he's going back and forth from uh, training. He trained in San Diego. Uh, basic training there, the boot camp and all. And then um, from there he um, would later, uh, I think it was after the Marshall Islands operation, he wound up in San Francisco, and it was there that he met my mother. And, uh, and that was the beginning, um, so that eventually when the war was over, they married, and I was the firstborn. <laughs> you're uh, you defined the baby boom. Yes, 1948. Yes, you're a boomer. That's great. Yeah. Now, uh, must have been an interesting guy to talk to. He did. Did he talk much about the war to you? No, he never did. Um, I um, I sort of gave up uh, asking him after a while. He didn't want to talk about it, and you know, like most veterans. Um, but I did hear the war stories in, in uh, sort of directly, indirectly, because over the years, uh, I've been thinking particularly, well, we, when I was a boy, my dad was stationed at uh, uh, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And so I grew up there in the 50s um, near Jacksonville. And... Uh, so, like on weekends, my dad would have a number of his Marine buddies over, and they'd be watching, you know, the, the weekly baseball game on TV. And uh, it was usually only one week. I think it was Saturday afternoon. And, uh, and they would talk, uh, you know, all these Marines, and they're having beer and so on. And uh, the war stories come up. And uh, so I'm around, so I heard some of the war stories that way. Um, and uh, I got to know, you know, they were my friends, my dad's friends, and so I, I got to know a lot of veterans from the World War II and from Korea, right? As well, yeah. So as a result, uh, you lived in. I know you lived in Hawaii and San Diego. Hawaii, when it was a territory, I, um, that was the um, that was the, the first my first memory. Uh, uh, is is that the Hawaii period, um, which um, it was a territory. Um, my dad 
was actually being stationed for Korea. I didn't know it. I was you know, just a boy. Uh, but he was, they were preparing his unit for Korea, but he, luckily he didn't have to go. So we lived in Hawaii during that period of time, and uh, um, it was, you know, before jets, so Hawaii did not have tourists. <laughs> there, was no, there was nobody there. When I tell people, they can't believe it. I mean, right. um, I mean, as a boy, I'm playing, I'm literally playing on the beaches. There's nobody there. I mean, just the other kids, you know. The, right. It's just the neighborhood kids, that's all. It's amazing. Yeah. And then uh, you lived in San Diego after that, or was it? No, uh, let's see. After that, let's see. After excuse me. After Hawaii, we went to North Carolina. Right. And then after North Carolina, <coughs> he was uh, sent to Philadelphia. Uh, so I, we lived in New Jersey on the other side of Philadelphia, uh, in Woodbury, Woodbury, New Jersey, and uh, but it was right over the. Uh, the, the bridge from Philadelphia. Right. And uh, so we were you know, half the time in New Jersey, half, half the time in Pennsylvania. Uh, I didn't know what my dad was doing then, but I, but I know now, of course. And actually, he was involved in what was for the Marine Corps top secret at that time. And he was working on the Hawk missile. And he was part of the early testing of the Hawk for the Marine Corps right. uh, at that time. Interesting, and uh, and then after that, um, in uh, New Jersey, he was then. Uh, I can still remember the the night. It was a dramatic. Right after dinner, the phone rings, and it's his commander, and they they want him. It's time for him to ship over. He's thinking about retiring, and they want him to ship over. And long story short, they convince him to ship over. And uh, next thing I know, we're leaving. Uh, so we're leaving New Jersey, and it looks like something's going to happen that had never happened before in my life. And that was my dad's going, but we're not. Mm. And uh, because of that situation, um, we wound up, I wound up in North, Northern California. My uncle had a ranch up in Northern California in Grass Valley. And uh, back in those days, it was very remote, very small. Almost <laughs> the population was so incredibly. There was a town close by Grass Valley, which was called Rough and Ready. <laughs> and when you when you drove through Rough and Ready, it was one building, and the population sign was like 120 people or something. You know. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Did very, the Rough and Ready describe that yeah, population? It or? did absolutely. Yeah, Rough and Ready. <laughs> But so the point there was that with my dad, um, he was being sent overseas, uh, and he would be gone for a year, a year and a half. We didn't really know. Uh, so I had to grow up fast now. Uh, we're on, we're, so I'm living on a ranch with my uncle. I learned how to ride horses and uh, do all kinds of things and you know, take care of daily chores in the barnyard. Um, but as it turns out, again, I didn't know at the time, I know now, my dad was being stationed for Vietnam, but nobody said it. Oh, uh, wow. This is so early that most people had no idea. Uh, so we're talking about 61, 62. 
uh, Kennedy's still in the White House, and uh, you know they're training, they're they're getting ready to go into Vietnam. So he's part. He was part of that initial uh, prepping for right. for what became the Vietnam War. Right. And so, how old are you when you're in Rough and Ready? Rough and Ready, I'm about twelve. Okay. Yeah. And you've been in California since. Yeah, I was born in San Francisco. Um, and yeah, so after the ranch, we came to Oceanside. And so my dad was at Camp Pendleton for many years. And I went to Oceanside High School. Um, met my buddy, who's we're still close, Warren Williams, who's yes. down, down in San Diego. We were high school buddies. I taught him how to play war games. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it was there. It was in. Several years ago, Roger told me the story of his first meeting with his friend Warren Williams during lunch at Oceanside High School. As with most things recollected between friends around events occurring more than 50 years ago, the stories are a little different, but let me give you the short version I heard from Roger. Roger and his friends were at lunch one day when they noted two star athletes approaching them. It was unusual enough that they all didn't know what to expect. One of the two was Warren Williams, and he came to Roger and asked if Roger played war games. Roger said, why, yes, yes, I do. Warren asked if Roger would teach him to play. And that kicked off a close friendship built around war games and a common family connection to the Marines that's lasted for over a half century. I was able to catch Warren Willie Williams to rehash his recollection of their first meeting and to discuss their long friendship. Uh, both our dads have been Marines. Both our dads have been involved in World War II. Uh, Roger and I obviously both had had interest in military affairs. And uh, so exactly what that connection was, someone obviously knew Roger that knew me, that knew that he was involved in things. But he was in the uh, California Cadet Corps. So uh, generally, athletes and Cadet Corps guys did not... Uh, our, our, our twains never met, you know, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we had this, our huge quad area with benches and umbrellas and tables and all that. So I walked up to him and, and said that, and he goes, oh, yeah, as a matter of fact. And then we just got, we started talking. And, um, the next thing, uh, I knew we were, oh, I don't know how much longer it was probably the next weekend or so we met at his house in his garage, set up Avalon Hill Waterloo. And, you know, and I, I think I'd read the rules and we hashed it out a little bit, talked about a few things and got to it. And, 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 and all Saturday afternoon, we played to the death. I mean, I, and I was the French cause I'm a big fan of Napoleon and he was the allies. And uh, it ended up with uh, Roger beating me, which of course happened probably most of the time. Um, and I, he had like two or three units left. I mean, it was just a, a bloodbath. And uh, and from that from that moment on, we were we were just fast friends. And uh, and again, he was kind of he was very quiet, mild mannered, very intelligent, very thoughtful. And I'm this you know loud af- athlete, music party guy, yaha. And you know how how that all worked. I just don't know, but and it's worked for 
what, 50 years or something like that. So, As a boy, you know, when we were living years. in New Jersey, yeah. my dad took the family to the Gettysburg uh, battlefield. Right, not far from Philadelphia. Not far. And it was it was a big deal, you know, uh, for me. And uh, uh, the tour, you know, was amazing. And so at the end of the day, it was, you know, mom and dad said, my brother Mark was with me. He's about four years younger than I am. And uh, <clears throat> so it, mom and dad said, you can buy one thing, you know. So we're in this store. And and that's when it happened. Uh, the, on the on the shelf, the Avalon Hill <laughs> Gettysburg game. Right. And I don't know what it was. It was like magic. It was like I have to have that. Right. I, I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I have to have it. And that's that's really where it started. But uh, I didn't really become serious about actually playing till I was living in Oceanside. Right. Yeah. So high school. Right. So then after high school. You, where'd you go to school? UCLA. I was an undergrad at UCLA. In the tumultuous 60s, uh, the late 60s, um, I was a art major and a motion picture minor, and um, um, my objective was to uh, get into the film business and uh, TV business, and uh, um, that was uh, that was an amazing time. Did you so uh, war games? Did uh-huh. you play while you were in college? No, uh, the war games for me stopped basically when I started college, or just as I was starting college. Um, and that was, I have to say, it was probably because of the war. It was because of Vietnam. It was hard to play the games, and then you know watch the news every night. Uh, it was a little too much to deal with, um, hard to wrap your head around. Sure. Uh, and, of course, the war was real for me. Uh, I went to military school. Uh, I was I, I was in the Cadet Corps, in California Cadet Corps. So for four years, I, I had military training, and uh, I became company commander of my unit in my senior year. And... Um, I thought I was going, you know, wow. the, the odds are I'm going I'm, you know, in terms of Vietnam. And uh, so, yeah, so I wasn't playing many war games then. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So your intention was, uh, was, was film. Yes, I wanted to get into motion pictures. My hero was David Lean. <laughs> I loved his movies, Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge on the River Kwai, Dr. Zhivago, and I dreamed of making those kind of movies, yeah. So that was all video graphics as opposed to static. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I was I was into that and uh I was into that also I think in terms of, you know, as I say I was an art major at UCLA, so I pushed the envelope as far as that, you know, the two-dimensional aspect when I was there as a student and uh and then also I got into theater. When I was in college, I wound up getting into theater. It was like, you know, I put my foot in, uh, I guess it was really my freshman year. And by the time I knew it, I mean, I went all the way. So by my junior, senior year, I'm uh, I'm producing plays, writing plays, directing plays. I'm doing plays at, 
you know, college, and I'm doing plays out of college, you know, doing, you know, actual professional uh, work. I was basically a set designer. I would, you know, uh, design sets and uh, build them, uh, supervise, you know, stage manager. Um, and I would direct. I wrote a one-act play. I directed a couple of plays. Um, so, of course, that's very three-dimensional, right. and there's a lot going on. And of course, I learned a lot about people, about actors and actresses, and all that sort of thing. And then that did lead, you know, as a motion picture minor at UCLA. You know, I did a project one at UCLA at the uh, Melnitz Hall, uh, UCLA. Uh, back in the early days, you know, when you had to do everything by yourself, right? And uh, yeah, so it was a, it was an interesting time. That's great. Yeah. When did you recognize that you had a skill or a, a gift for artistic graphical presentation? Well, the probably I, I always go back to it, so I think it must be in terms of your your question. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, as a boy growing up in North Carolina, my dad was from Memphis, and that's where my grandmother lived. And so when we were in North Carolina in the 50s, my, uh, my dad took the family to visit grandma in Memphis. It was there, it was the summer, I can't remember what year that was. Probably, if I had to guess, it might have been 59. Um, and uh, so we're visiting Grandma. We're there for maybe a week, maybe two weeks. And um, Grandma has a nice house, not far from the Mississippi. Um, old style. Um, classic, I really, I would say. Many rooms, multiple levels, um, old, very well taken care of, though. Um, and Grandma lives with my aunt. So uh, I get to know my aunt during the visit, and it turns out, you know, she was a lifetime teacher. She was a teacher her whole life. She never married. And also, she lived, my grandmother, with her brother. And her brother was a writer. So meeting all of them, you know, was, as a little boy, that was a big deal. But I didn't really understand what was going on completely. But in terms of your question, um, it was the day basically my grandmother said, well, your uncle her brother would like to meet me. And so I've been invited to the inter sanctum of his room. <laughs> and so as it turns out, he has this section of the house, which is all his. And nobody goes there unless you're invited. And uh, when I walk in, it's, it's an incredible experience. It's almost impossible to describe. As it turns out, he's a writer of military history. Oh, wow. He writes many books, primarily on the American Civil War and the American Revolution. And 
when I walked into his room, his working room, there are books everywhere. I mean, everywhere. It's classic mail. There's wood and, and everything everywhere. And artwork on the walls. Uh, you know, famous American military leaders. Um, and I think that's where it started. There was something, the lights started to turn on for me at that point. And uh, uh, I remember... When we wound when we wound wound up going back home to North Carolina, I started drawing military pictures. I started drawing Civil War soldiers, <laughs> and I sent some of them to my grandmother and to my aunt and to my uncle. You know, um, and they wrote back and said, you know, well, very good. You know, it, mm -hmm. uh, this is very nice, and uh, you have <laughs> you have talent and all this sort of thing. I didn't believe any of that, uh, but it was nice to hear. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it started. Interesting. Yeah. And and that that makes it even more powerful when you visit Gettysburg, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know the place and you know how significant it is and uh it just means so much in so many ways and you know, I'm so happy that it's so well taken care of. Yes. And uh um I took took my son Stephen there and uh, uh my wife May um, it's it's a very special place. It's uh it's nothing less than a religious experience. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's just yeah. It's and, hollow, and to it's walk, you know, to walk it and so on. So you know, back to our Gettysburg game. It, you know, it, I know what it means to Mark Herman, uh, and it means that and and more to him. And so, you know, he put his um, he put a lot of work into that game. And, uh, well, as you may have heard, I mean, today's the 1st of September 2019, and uh, we just found out uh, Mark uh, has been nominated the, the, his Gettysburg Game International, uh, what is it, International Game Award. It's been nominated. Uh, yeah, I saw that. Uh, I saw that article yesterday. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, it was nominated also for the Golden, Golden Geek Award. The Golden so Geek, yeah. That surprised all of us. We, yes. we didn't expect that. Yeah. yeah. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by anything that Mark does, should well, we? Well, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right. He, he's, <laughs> he's an amazing person. Well, Mark and I go way, way back, back to the 70s, which is uh, right. you know, part of what we'll be talking about today. And uh, yeah, it was in the 70s that, uh, that we met, and Richard Berg, my dear friend who just passed away, um, I've known Richard and Mark since then, since the early days of SPI. Right. Since when I started Fire and Movement, Richard and Mark worked on Fire and Movement with me, with along with, <laughs> well, Jim Dunnigan and Redmond Simonson and <laughs> Ira Hardy and uh, Phil Kosnett and all kinds of guys at SPI in the early days, Howie Barish, Al Nofi. All those guys, I mean, they were, we were all together, but we were on opposite coasts, you know. Right. So, um, you know, in retrospect, uh, you know, the, we didn't, I didn't, you know, I knew, it seemed like everything was going on the, on the East Coast, but actually there were a number, number of us out here on the West Coast, you know, Jack Green and Dana Lombardi and 
some of the other guys here on the West Coast that were doing things uh, around that same time. You go to UCLA, you graduate, and uh, what's your first what's your first paying gig after college? Uh, that's a good one. Well, for me, it, there was a breakthrough. Um, um, because of my background and and so on, in my in my degree, it actually did help. Um, I was able to get a job in Hollywood, not where I wanted, not at one of the movie studios, but at an advertising firm. So I worked for an ad firm in Hollywood uh, on Melrose, and um, they were, I didn't realize it, but they were grooming me to become manager of the of the advertising department. And this particular ad firm, they uh, were also a publisher. So they published magazines, and they had probably tw two dozen different publications they were putting out. So obviously, if you're putting out a couple dozen different magazines, you got a lot of advertising going on. So the ad agency repped all these magazines. And so that was part of my job. And so uh, as assistant manager, when I was in training, um, I worked on all these magazines as far as advertising in terms of, you know, getting the ads set up, scheduling them for, you know, the next number of issues over the next couple, two or three years, depending on, you know, what the advertising advertiser wanted. And uh, so with this particular setup in Hollywood, um, we had, uh, there was a different room for every editor of every different magazine. And as I say, there were all kinds of different magazines. And there was an art department, and the art department was relatively big, had maybe four or five full-time people. And um, Andy Furr was the art director, a wonderful man. And uh, so long story short, um, I, at lunchtime, did not go to lunch. I walked into the art department, <laughs> and I was just watching what everybody was doing. Uh, got to know the different artists and got to know Andy Furr, the art director. And I knew this is where I want to be. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> really want to be doing what I'm doing. Uh, and, um, but I can't obviously do anything about it. So what happened was, the, in, in retrospect, the, the moment, I was in Don File's office. Don File was the editor of Vertex magazine, which was our science fiction magazine, professional magazine, um, which published short stories by top science fiction writers, you know, Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, a large number of the major writers of the time, and interviewed them. I mean, they were literally, these, these writers were coming in the office all the time. So, you know, I ran into some of the top science fiction writers in the hallway. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, Philip K. Dick, among others, and um, Ray Bradbury. Anyway, one day I'm in Don Files' office. He's fuming. He's so angry. Uh, I've never seen him this way before. 
had just slammed the phone down. There's somebody else in the room, I forget who it was, but somebody else was in the room at the same time and he was yelling at him. It turned out that the cover art for the latest issue of Vertex, the artist was sick, but nobody knew it. The deadline was now, and the artwork is not there, and the guy's sick, and they don't know what to do. And I don't know why, but I, I knew Don, but I knew him professionally from the advertising side. But I said, Don, I also do artwork. <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, what? And uh, he literally said, where is it? Well, I said, it's at my apartment. I can be back in an hour. He said, get out of here. I want to see it in an hour. So I went, I, I dashed down Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> breaking the speed limit, and uh, grabbed my portfolio, came back, and showed it to Don Files. He says, you got the job. <laughs> and so I got the cover, and the next thing I knew, I was on staff, and eventually I became the lead illustrator for Vertex Magazine. That's terrific. Yeah. So that's where it started for me. You yeah. still have that cover? I do. Yeah, I'd love to see it sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe we could get a copy of it or for the sure to share for the, absolutely yeah. for the summary. Um, <laughs> now that's 1974 was when that happened. Is that right? right? Uh -huh. But 1973, you started your own studio. That's right. I started my own studio. RBM Studios started in '73 uh, in Los Angeles, um, and uh, you know. It, <laughs> A one-man operation out of a little small apartment in Westwood. And I was, you know, just desperate for freelance work. And so I, I worked on a variety of things. I did maps uh, for professors at UCLA. You know, they were, they were writing books and they needed, mm -hmm. they needed graphics. They needed maps. Whatever they needed, I would do it. Um, I was, you know, I was looking for um, clients wherever I could find them. And, um, but the situation with Vertex uh, later on would lead to Mankind Magazine. I wound up working for Mankind Magazine, which was a history-oriented magazine. So that was, so I'm doing science fiction and history. Combined with other clients, I'm doing logo design and things like that for other clients, um, books, as I said. So... Eventually, um, my studio is doing you know, pretty well by itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Roger, how did we get from from this point in your career to the start of Fire and Movement, which, ha which happened shortly thereafter? Right. Right. Yeah. The big the big transition there was. Um, this kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions about you know w was I still playing, and in the college days, no. But as it turned out, once college was over, once I graduated, um, I wound up getting back into playing. Um, the war in Vietnam, of course, was coming to an end. Um, so, and, there, and, and that was also the rise of S SPI in New York, Dunnigan, Simonson, and so on. Um, and I was hooked, you know, I mean, I, like most guys, you know, subscribed to S&T and to Moves. Mm -hmm. And I, I lived for the next issue. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I had buddies. Warren Williams was one from San Diego. A number of other guys that I grew up with that had play, I played war games with, both in San Diego, Oceanside, and then also in Los Angeles. So I got together with these guys, and so you know we're playing. And uh, eventually, we sort of become a, a little a little group. We have our own sort of little convention, you know, spend the weekend playing while I, while our girlfriends you know go off and do something <laughs> else. And um, um, so it was around that time that for me the I started my my first amateur publication. I I started Arquebus. I did that all by hand. I did that late at night at the kitchen table. Right. And, you know, it was uh, a labor of love. And uh, so when, when I, essentially the first issue was done, you know, it's a Xerox. It's a photocopy job. And I would make copies and send them out to my friends. And uh, that, was, that was really my first publication. So I, I did 10 issues of Archibus. And each issue, it got more serious. I got deeper into it. I got more involved. Until eventually, I, th- I think it was right around that time, it was uh, Warren. Warren said to me, Warren, Warren Williams, he said, uh, you know, you should start your own professional magazine. You know, And I hadn't really seriously thought about it in, until then. I said, well, maybe I should. So then that's when I started to really think, uh, how could I do that? Because I don't have any money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let me interrupt you for a minute. Sure. What was in Archibus? What would we find? Um, I still have copies of those. Uh, what you would find was uh, uh, they were primarily focused on uh, the modern period, uh, modern warfare, current situation in the at that time in the 70s in Europe, uh, NATO, uh, potential wars in the Middle East, of course, which were still going on. 73 war had just happened, so we did a lot. In Arquebus, there's a lot of 73 uh, Arab-Israeli uh, coverage in there, uh, and that would be in combination with battle reports on games that dealt with those subjects. So, you know, obviously that was a lot of SPI stuff. So we we would have, you know, Red Star, White Star uh, battle reports and, uh, and, and, you know, the Middle East game, the Sinai and all the rest. <clears throat> so the focus was current military affairs around the world and games that covered those subjects. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So Warren says it's time to become uh, professional. To, to turn it up and, and he, become uh, professional. Uh, he had he created on his own this uh, newsletter that a Mimeo newsletter called Archibus. And um, he would send these out to a few to a few key people. And uh, then one time I finally said Roger, there's got to be a market for this kind of thing. The only things that are available are house organs out there. There's nothing that's independent that's looking at these kinds of things and having this kind of fun. We should go public with this. And I guess it struck a chord within him, and um, he starts doing some investigating, and uh, lo and behold, we finally got a publisher. I think I contributed 
I, I think a hundred dollars to the first paper run um, with this guy. It was where I can't remember where it was now. It'll come to me. But anyway, yeah, the publisher in La Puente or something. Anyway, and uh, Fire and Movement was born, and we uh, we we went from there. And I was I was his assistant uh, editor and writer, and. Uh, did a few things and uh, uh, had a great time. Edited some articles, uh, learned about publish the publishing business. Yeah. So then it was, um, how do you, uh, yeah, uh, how do you, how do you make a professional magazine when you don't have any money? Uh, so and you don't have Kickstarter. You don't have Kickstarter. Uh, you don't have any way to really communicate uh, to a bigger audience, so to speak. Um, I just had a dream, as they say. Um, so I basically did a uh, mock-up of what an issue would be like, and I started to um, try to sell it. Um, you know, much like somebody would try to pitch a movie to the different studios, uh, and uh, you, know, you might have a storyboard, you might have a, an outline. So, you know, as you've heard those stories, you know, all the studios said no, and so that's what I had, you know, everybody said no, <laughs> nobody's interested. And then one day, um, I think it was just on a hunch, I sent it, I sent the material to, um, to a company out in East L.A. that I knew they were doing uh, publications because I had seen them, um, they were primarily photo magazines on tanks and things like that, and uh, they, you know, they they looked okay. Um, but I thought, well, you know, if they do that, maybe they might be interested in this. Um, so I got a call from the guy who was running the place, and he invited me out. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, it was called Baron Publishing, and they were out in. Uh, El Monte, East L.A. Uh, so when I got there, <laughs> I'm looking for the place, and eventually I found it. It was on the far end of the runway of the airport, and it was a Quonset hut. Oh, my gosh. And um, I knew all about Quonset huts uh, back to when my Hawaii days, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I knocked on the door. So there they were, and it's inside this metal Quonset hut. They've got everything. They've got their printing press. I mean, everything. The place is a complete mess. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe what a mess it is. <laughs> it looks like something from a W.C. Fields movie. It's just a big mess, but organized. It's an organized mess. And they're, you know, they're just putting stuff out and they're doing their magazines. Um, and so the guy who owns the place, the, the printing press set up, he's the one I you know, pitched the idea to. And uh, that's where it got started. Um, he bought it, uh, in, not, not bought it in the sense of uh, the magazine, he just bought the idea that you know, we should do it. And, uh, um, as it turned out, of course, I, I did everything but print it. Um, and uh, I started to organize um, 
a team of writers, and uh, um, that took a while, and uh, and then everything else that went with it. Um, how how would we put it together? How would it be organized? What actually would be in the in every issue? Um, what would be the name? Uh, how would we deal with advertising? All these things, I had no nobody to turn to. Uh, I I had to figure these things out on my own. Um, but I did have people that did help me along the way. You know, in, important people. One of the very first was Mark Saha. He was a writer for War Game magazines. He had written for the General. He had written for Moves. But it turns out he was here in the Los Angeles area. So he and I became very good friends, and he helped me from an editorial standpoint. Also, as time went by, um, Richard Debon uh, also became very important to the magazine and helped me uh, from an editorial standpoint. But the weight of everything fell on me. I obviously had to edit all the magazines. I had to lay them all out by hand, you know, before the desktop computers, and do all the artwork, and you know, basically coordinate everything and oversee the printing, uh, and and things. And lots of headaches and problems there. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we got the magazine out the door, and the first issue went out in '76, and. Um, uh, we had no subscribers, <laughs> zero, zero <laughs> subscribers, and uh, we had no idea what was going to happen. Uh, but of course, the magazine would go on to last for many years and uh, over 100, 150 printed issues. Wow. It was, uh, it was iconic at the time. I re- well, I, re- I remember it uh, probably later, a few years later, when I started gaming, but uh, it was a, must, a must-see uh, as much as, as strategy and tactics was to me. Now, you had a byline with the magazine, and it was the Independent Forum of Conflict Simulation. Right. What did that mean to you? At that time, what that meant was that there was, it was actually said that there was a glut of games. There were too many games coming out, and the players didn't know which ones to buy. They didn't know which ones were good, which ones were bad. Um, they didn't know which companies were good or bad. They didn't know who they could trust. Um, so my vision from the very beginning was that fire movement would be independent. It would not be uh, it would not be biased or leaned in one direction or another. Um, and we would not refrain from criticizing. We would criticize if a game was. What we thought was bad, if our writers thought it was bad, well, then that's the way we see it. So, you know, we let the chips fall where they may. And uh, so uh, we were kind of pushing the envelope for the time, and uh, we weren't playing favorites. But at the same time, we're you know, I'm trying to run a magazine and survive, so <laughs> I need advertising. So I had to kind of, it was a balancing act. I mean, I would have, Avalon Hill would be upset with me, you know, what are you doing, you know, lambasting the Russian campaign? 
But I said, look, you know, that's what my that's what my writer said, and I have to back him. You know, they, that's the way he sees it. Right. Um, so I was able to get just about everybody to advertise. Avalon Hill advertised with the F and M, SPI did, GDW, Battle Line. Uh, TSR, Gary Gygax, uh, uh, he, he wrote for Fire and Movement, uh, we, he was still doing war games back then. Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons had not quite happened yet, it was just beginning to happen. So uh, all those people advertised in Fire and Movement, and uh, I think our independence did matter um, because I think we did actually get respect from the the big publishers in because they knew i mean you know we might give avalon hill a, you know a negative review and then we might give spi a negative review i mean it it depended you know again it depended on how on how we saw it right can you give me an example of one of the companies being upset about a specific review that that sticks in your memory Probably it would have to be really from the very beginning. It would be issue number one, um, which actually turned out to be a, a significant in terms of the magazine itself. Uh, as you may re- recall, the first issue we featured Tobruk. And at the time, Tobruk had not, well, it was just about to be released. I mean, it was brand new in every way. How mm-hmm. uh, Hawk, H O C K, was the designer. And it was a um, super detailed tactical North Africa game that at that point in time was so boring uh, to play. Uh, and uh, we, we said so. You know? right. But Avalon Hill, as I say, I was able to convince Avalon Hill to advertise in the magazine so they're going like, you know, you're aver- we're advertising in your magazine and you're, and you're slamming our game. <laughs> and I, I said again, well, you know, that's, that's the way my writer sees it. But if you have something to say, I'll put it in the magazine. Right. And Avalon Hill said, what? I said, yeah. I mean, well, I'm not done. The, I mean, you know, I mean, I, they had seen the galleys. So I said, yeah, there's, I could still put your comments in here. So that's when it started. Uh, they responded in the same issue. So our writer said what he wanted to say, and they were able to respond to him all in the same issue. And that became a trademark of the magazine. Mark Herman and Roger McGowan have been friends for a long time. I asked Mark if he could recollect the first time he met Roger McGowan. There used to be a thing called the Game Designers Guild, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. And the Game Designers Guild, you know, this is sort of like the... Um, it sounds like a secret society of some kind. It wasn't that secret. Uh, it was quite... Uh, but what it was is there was a time when you had SPI, Avalon Hill, GDW, and then there was a whole host, you know, this is Frank Chadwick, Time, Jim Dunnigan. They were like the, you know, Redmond Simonson, um, you know, Rick Banner. They, these were the guys who were running the show in those days. And I was just one of the, you know, the, you know, the, the young, you know, bananas running around trying to design games. And um, and it used to be a game designers guild, and that's how the award. It was really around like a professional. Um, you had to be a game designer. You had to pay. I think there was even dues, but they were very like you know 
nominal. You know, I think SPI used to pay our dues for us, you know, because they didn't pay as much money. So that was one of those big perks we used to get. Um, and, uh, and just giving a sidelight, you know, yesterday was December 16th, right? And December 16th is the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge. So, so in SPI, you didn't get Christmas off. You got the first day of the Battle of the Bulge off. <laughs> now, you didn't have to take it on the 16th. You could take it on the 25th. But you didn't get Christmas off. You got the Battle of the Bulge off, just so you understand the mentality of this crowd. Right, right. Um, so, um, and Dunnigan's sense of humor. So... There were these Game Designer Guild meetings, and the first time I read Marge, Roger McGowan's, you know, what year is this? So if I'm at SPI, this is somewhere in the 76 to 78 time frame in years, 1978. That's 1978, guys, somewhere in there, because that would have been when I was at SPI that age. I was like, you know, I wasn't married yet and, uh, you know, going to these conventions with the company. And there was a Game Designer Guild meeting, I never forgot, and... What happened every year is, remember, there's no internet. Let, let, let me just, no internet, no cell phones, you know, no computers, you know. Okay, so for all those people going, like, what? You know, it's like, <laughs> we had color TV barely. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, yes. it wasn't that long ago, right? So none of this stuff exists. Um, uh, and so what happened was to <laughs> vote on the awards for the Game Designers Guild, the magazines would publish the list of all the games that were eligible. And so Fire Movement being one of the leading magazines at that time, I mean, it was the lead magazine at that time for this kind of thing. I mean, there's a whole lot of other ones, but F&M was the, the magazine of record. And, you know, somewhere along the way, Roger, they probably didn't give him the paperwork. You know, he had to try to figure it out, and they didn't give him the paperwork and tell him, hey, we got these games come out. So some small company, I don't remember who, they didn't, um, their games didn't show up on an F&M for the, the official list. So they were in the guild meeting, and they really flipped, flipped, flipped out. You know, it was one of those yelling and screaming, and I'm sitting in the back, and, and I'm kind of like, you know, I, I find um, hypocrisy and yelling and screaming and all that stuff to just be annoying. And I was, and also, this is me, you know, when I'm young, and I didn't give it, you know, I was a little bit more aggressive, you know, and, and so I'm sitting there watching this thing, and so they decide that the guild is going to censure Fire movement. They're gonna have a vote to censure fire movement. So they get it to the floor. So this guy goes, "I, I vote that we censure." You know, and I don't know what that would have meant, but it was just kind of like crappy, you know. And I, and I was, I didn't like the whole tenor of this thing because, because in the end, it came up that they didn't hand in the paperwork. Well, you should have known. Well, no, but let take. So this is one of those somebody not taking responsibility for action, which always drives me up the wall. You know, hey, you screwed up. Own up to it, man. If you, if you didn't screw up and somebody else did, well, see what the what was the problem. Fix it, but don't you know try to ruin this guy's business because, um, you know, you you you're all ticked off that your you know game that by the way is unlikely to even get noticed is not on a list. Okay, so unlike a lot of the guys in the room, I when I was in school, I took. They had a public speaking class in high school. This is like, remember, this is the ancient times, right? You know, we were, we were, rhetoric actually mattered in my, my <laughs> lifetime. And they had taught us Robert Rules of Order. That was part of public speaking. You had to know these rules. And I happen to know that the top of the list is adjournment. So I, I see the vote about to happen. So I raise my hand and says, hey, I, I'd like to bring a, a floor. The motion goes, what is that? I, I, I vote that we adjourn. And the guy goes, we can't adjourn, we're going to vote. He goes, no. And I said, you got to look in the rules. So, of course, the guy had, you know, this is the, they actually pull it out. and got, you got a whole room of game designers, and we got the rules. That's right. <laughs> Robert Rules of Orders. And they look, and he goes, oh, look, adjournment number one on the list. So we have to do an adjournment vote before we do this other vote. We all voted to adjourn the meeting, and there was no vote. 
So I walk out of the meeting feeling really good with myself, <laughs> having destroyed, you know. And there are people looking at me. You won the game. I won the game. Uh, you know, this was the ultimate uh, victory condition. And uh, so just knowing the rules better than anybody else in the room. And the guys from that company, they were yelling at me. And I'm going, and, you know, luckily I'm, I'm fairly large. So I was kind of like smiling and waving at them because I didn't care. You know, I wasn't afraid. And I walk out of the room and this guy walks up to me. He goes, hi, why don't you introduce myself? I'm Roger McGowan. And I want to thank you so much for, you know, doing that, you know. So that's how I met him. So I didn't even know him before that, but this, this was no, our, no. our well, meeting. And not, we've been like best friends ever since then. They, they were house organs. Right. You know, we were never that. They, you know, I mean, Avalon Hill acted like the general, acted like there was no other company or magazine but them. Um, SPI was different. Redmond, in particular, was open and talked about other publishing companies and other magazines. Yeah. To Brooks, an interesting example too, because as I look back, you, you know, uh, it was one of. I'll, I'll tell you, it was one of my favorite games. So, I, luckily, I didn't read your review uh, before <laughs> I purchased it. When I was well, they they improved. In high it. They did, they did <laughs> it improve. got better, but uh, it was one of my favorite games, and it was because of that obsessive. Uh, detail in that that made it so boring, right? right. <laughs> in in the execution of the fire combat, right, right. And and it and it moved me toward Tank Duel, right? So right. when when Tank Duel started, uh, I'd come up with the idea, and, and Mike and I worked together on it, and then I turned that over to him. But one of the, one of the things that we focused on was that obsessive detail in the combat resolution, right? Is is do you hit? Where do you hit? What's the what's the penetration of your weapon? What's the penetration or the 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 thickness of the armor at that point and the angle and 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 uh, as I look back, I read I went back through all the articles in the general, and the de- designer wrote a tremendous amount about it in the general in a very defensive fashion, clearly yes. under attack. Right. Yeah, he felt that. Yeah. He felt so that. Yeah. At the time, he it must have been a very uh, controversial game. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. And. Uh, you know, when Avalon Hill released it at Origins, I think it was Origins at that time, they released what was really, uh, I mean, it was a release, but it was sort of a pre-release. It actually, the cover art, the cover layout was actually uh, done for a very limited print run. That would happen uh, later with Squad Leader, too. Right. Uh, so um, that's what we were operating with uh, in Fire Movement. We... Uh, because of Mark Saha, he had connections at Avalon Hill. We were able to get an early copy of Tobruk. Oh, great! That's why we were able to be. We were on top of it so fast. Right, and they were able to adjust. Yes, and and that's what. Yeah, so so in that way, I mean, I don't want to give Fire Movement more credit than it deserves, but I think to some extent we did have an impact on that game. I think maybe we helped to make it better. Right. Yeah. And more importantly, though, that you were you were a neutral party. Neutral. Yes, absolutely, because. At the end of the day, and this is absolutely true, we loved the games and we loved the companies, but we were not going to uh, misinform our readers. We, they were the most important part. And I believe that if there was something that happened between us and our fire and movement subscribers, it was that, a trust. They trusted us, and we knew that. And so we, we called them as we saw it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move away from fire and movement for just a little bit. Sure. And we're going to go right back to it. Um, but 
at a, at about the same time, right? And so in '76, right, uh, you become art director for UCLA Media Center TV studio. That's right. Um, and actually, at at some point, um, the work was nominated for an Emmy, right? When I started there, um, we were just about to go into production on what turned out to be a TV series for public broadcasting uh, produced here by KCET in Los Angeles. And uh, it's called First Images of the New World. And uh, so um, I was the... uh, assistant art director, art director on that uh, show. And uh, as I say, it was a series, so we did everything uh, on that from a production standpoint. And since, as you can imagine, first images of the new world, so there's a lot of uh, artwork and material that has to be researched and or created. I had to you know, create a variety of things and then also I'm creating for television, so the graphics in those days before the computer, um, so I'm preparing the graphics so that they work with cameras in the studio, and the TV studio, so we can do special effects and, and do move, moves on the artwork and things like that. So that requires a lot of special um, preparation. So, um, but, but that was also a... Um, as a TV production, it was that whole drama of of meeting deadlines. Everything had to be done by certain dates, and 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 you know. So that when you know when you lay in the sound, you lay in the music, and you do the editing and all this. So you know everything was very precise. So there were a lot of late nights that that, that we had to put in. We drank a lot of coffee. Right. Well, so nineteen seventy six. Then we have. Um, Donald Greenwood right. uh, makes contact with you. That's right. And and uh, how did how did your relationship with Don Greenwood start? Well, it, it was very interesting. I I received a letter in, in the mail uh, from Avalon Hill. You know the Avalon Hill logo on the on the envelope, um, and I really wasn't quite sure what it was. Um, and uh, it turned out to be from vice, the vice president, uh, one of the vice presidents at uh, Avalon Hill, Don Greenwood. And he had told me that he had seen my artwork and that he wanted to uh, hire me to do artwork for Avalon Hill if I was interested. And uh, so I said, uh, I, yes, I, I would be interested. Um, we talked about projects. And uh, he mentioned uh, the Russian campaign, that that was coming up for them. And I said, well, I'll, I'll take that if you like. And back in those days, Avalon Hill did flat box, not, not just bookcase, but flat box. So the Russian campaign was a flat box. And um, um, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, that is to say, I had never seen the Jetco version out of Australia, so I, I wasn't sure what exactly that was. I had played Stalingrad from Avalon Hill from years before, so I obviously knew what that was. But I was also very much into the Eastern Front. I had read many books about it. So the idea of working on an Eastern Front game was interesting to me, and this encompasses the whole war. So 
um, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. Well, there's no direction. You know, uh, I don't know anything about the game. I don't know who I don't know who designed it, um, and I have nothing to work with. Only you know that you know what the size of a flat box is for Avalon Hill, and this is the deadline, and that's it. There's, there's nothing else. So I created what became the Russian campaign cover based on that. So it was a labor of love. It was just me doing my thing. Uh, just sort of the way I envisioned the Russian front. Um, yeah, that, with the Russian campaign, what it what it really came down to was that, again, this is 1976. Um, at that point in time, there had been very few Eastern Front games that had been produced. Um, the... Stalingrad, which of course had been around from the 60s from Avalon Hill. Now, when you look at those at that point, again, the important thing is the time, 1976. So what would you see if you were to lay out the covers of all those Eastern Front games before I did the Russian campaign? And the one thing you would see is those covers are overwhelmingly, almost entirely, German. Every image is Germans. Now, I've had people say, well, what about Stalingrad? You know, there's like 30 photographs, you know, that are on the cover. Yeah. I said, yeah, look at the cover of Stalingrad. There are 30 photographs. Every one is Germans. <laughs> there are no Russians in there. It's 30 photographs, and it's all Germans. Right. So I decided on the Russian campaign to have Russians on the cover. So um, my focus, um, my central image, shows Russian soldiers, one standing in front of another with their rifle bayonets behind them. Um, and I have Russian soldiers in the snow. Um, I have Germans as well, but there are Russians on the cover. And for me, um, that was making a statement, you know, because it's not just the Germans on the Eastern Front, it's the Russians. And right. the Russians won. They beat the Germans. So uh, <laughs> let's try to keep this in perspective. Right. Uh, I respect... The armies, you know, in the sense that, you know, there are millions of men on both sides that fought. But uh, I, think, I think when you're doing the artwork for a historical game like that, it, it should be balanced. So I tried to balance it uh, in that regard. So that was part of my objective. The other thing was, uh, 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 it's kind of funny but true, um, if you look at the artwork, there wasn't much, but in the sense of original artwork on war games before that, but you won't find somebody's name. In other words, the artist did not get credit. Um, so uh, I was determined that, that was not going to happen to me. So I put my name on the Russian campaign, um, but not knowing what 
Avalon Hill's policy was, I did it in such a way that I figured they probably won't even see it. <laughs> and they didn't. So they printed it, but my name is there. And uh, to this day, you can see it. So, uh, but that was in my contract, uh, you know, that I would get name and copyright credit. And that has always been the case. That's why I still own all my artwork. I have my name and my copyright on everything. And I have been ripped off. I know what that's like. So I don't do name and copyright, you know, for no reason. I do it because I have experience having my artwork stolen. Right. Well, so so that was a very savvy move. Yeah. Actually, your son Stephen and I were talking about that earlier, that that you taking control of your artwork right. from the start has, at this point in your life, created a large catalog of intellectual property. Yes, it's true. Yes. And it's, um, it's something that I think um, uh, my son Stephen and I have been talking about this with our RBM Studio uh, setup today that with modern technology, we can, if there's a demand, we can go back and actually bring some of this artwork back. I mean, for example, let's, we'll take the Russian campaign or Squad Leader, since they were popular games, um, and we can bring that artwork back. In other words, with uh, our poster division, which is now starting up, um, we could have posters made of my artwork from Squad Leader, from the Russian campaign. If there's enough interest, we could do it. Right. Well, I, I think your your work's iconic, and so many uh, so many of us romantically remember those covers, uh, whether it's Russian campaign or our Squad Leader, right, or or a host of others. Um, so absolutely, no, I, I'm I'm excited to see what you all uh, do with that. We, we we started talking about your relationship with Don Greenwood, right? And so you would you would go on to design uh, box art for them, ten years for ten years, ten years, yeah. yeah, yeah. We worked together for ten years. I I worked with Tom Shaw, also another vice president at Avalon Hill. So most of my assignments came from either Don Greenwood or from Tom Shaw right. over that ten year period. And uh, and I worked for with a, f- a few other people there um, at at Avalon Hill, um, but like with the Russian campaign, they they never uh, directly interfered with me um, until uh, towards the end of our what would turn out to be towards the end of our relationship, which was on the upfront project. Uh, that's the only time when they interfered with me, and um, uh, but otherwise, you know, I did what I wanted to do. What does interfered mean in the context of upfront? Well, the way I worked was that you know um, I would do. This is twentieth century. Uh, I would do pencil sketches, so I would sketch out a cover. Okay. Then I would send it to the publisher. So I'm sending Avalon Hill uh, a rough pencil sketch. This is what, how I see the cover. And they, you know, they always approved everything. And then I sent them the pencil sketch for up front. And there was a long delay. I wasn't sure what was going on. And of course, this is 
before emails, so everything is through the post office. Eventually, I get a response, you know, um, well, you know, it looks okay, but we'd rather have Germans on the cover. And I did up front with Americans on the cover. I felt up front, that, that sounds American to me, uh, because of the famous cartoon series, The Upfront, Bill Maudlin, I think. Um, so um, I said, um, yeah, um, I want Americans on the cover. And uh, they came back and they said they wanted Germans. And uh, I don't know. Uh, it just, I said, okay. So I gave them Germans. We will take a break here. We have more from Roger in part two of an interview with Roger McGowan. <laughs> 